Hello, Assalamu Alaikum and welcome to Young, Muslim and Talented. Today I'm absolutely delighted to um, be joined by my friend and uh, the CEO of the Patchwork Foundation, um, Imran Sanaullah. Imran, hello. Assalamu Alaikum. How are you today? Welcome, Sam. I'm well. How are you? Very well, thanks. I mean, we're both sitting um, in what is quite a dreary day today, which is quite rainy, but I think we're both kind of thankful that maybe it's a bit cooler than it was last week. We had a real um, heat wave, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I think this is the perfect example for what British summer looks like, so... Yeah, yeah, back to normal. Um, my, <laughs> my anxiety can come back to um, normal levels, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um so thanks so much for giving us your time today. I know you're a busy man, so I really appreciate it. Um, so on our podcast, we just want to explore more about who you are and what you do and some of the collective experiences, um, you know, uh, along your journey from primary school all the way through secondary school and university that have resulted in, in you doing what you do or what you're passionate about out in the world today. Um, so can we start from the very beginning? So... Um Starting off from where I, I was born, I was born in southwest London, Tooting, which I know you know fairly well, and um, mm -hmm. I feel I know really well because I still live here, I was brought up here. Um, but it was quite a normal upbringing in the sense, well, I say normal, normal for me, um, where when my dad actually passed away when I was six months old. So that kind of set my life on a certain trajectory at that point. And I was brought up by my mum single-handedly. I was her only child, and she kind of invested her whole life into me. So although there were certain privileges I couldn't experience as a kid just because of the financial abilities and what we couldn't have, she... Um, she gave me everything that she could. She gave me lots of love. She gave me a lot of guidance, and a lot of that guidance was based on um, Islamic principles. Um, so she herself was um, a master's, had a master's in Islamic studies because she was born in Pakistan. So she came here um, uh, when she got married to my dad. And a lot of the things that she taught me growing up, uh, even though I didn't realize as a kid, were Islamic principles of taking care of people, looking out for each other, but also the elements of education. My mom was very focused on me having good education because that would be the, the balancer for my future and the thing that I could use to hopefully help me out in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, kind of my upbringing was um, interesting at times. There was a period when we were homeless when I was in primary school. Um, so we, I jumped around quite a few primary schools as a kid. Um, so I'd say my, my childhood was quite unstructured. And I even remember a teacher telling my mom that actually education, he's not that smart. Um, I was a slightly thick child. Um, but, I, but one thing that I remember very distinctly is my mom praying a lot. Um, especially after Isha, that my, my my education kind of comes back to me and I'm able to learn and do better because, um, yeah, there, there was basically no hope for me and my, my primary school teacher making that very clear to, to my mum. To be fair, I was only a little kid at the time, so hmm. um, maybe a bit harsh. On reflection, do, do you have a view of why you think you weren't that academically inclined? Were you more kind of a hands-on person or you had other interests? Do you think um, the experiences that you had having such a maybe slightly unstructured or unusual upbringing maybe um, created a, an environment where, where you weren't that interested in educate, traditional education anyway? 
So I think it's interesting, and I think I only realised this once I eventually got to university. So I did, I did kind of fix up at a certain point. Um, and I'd say there was some sort of miraculous element to that where it wasn't any of my own doing, but I think more my mum paying a lot of attention on me um, and trying to teach me at home. Um, but I think what really happened was I'm just not a, a huge fan of reading or the traditional methods of learning, um, which is quite ironic because I went on good, uh, to go and do law at um, at university so probably not the best degree mm -hmm. on planet earth to do um but i also found out i was dyslexic while i was at university as well so i think that made me realize that actually the traditional method of learning for me was not the most practical and i'm i'm one for virtual learning or practical learning and it's something that i try to tell a lot of people the best thing that you can do is learning the best way that you possibly learn um and i even mm -hmm. do that now where I might be in meetings and there's lots of text and I know I can't dice through that text and that's not my strong strong point either. But I can do the other elements of kind of creative thinking or problem solving because that's where my strengths lie. So, so let's go back to when did you find out you were dyslexic and uh, was that in primary school or secondary school? I, um, I remember my primary school teachers thinking that I was dyslexic, but being slightly unsure. And I remember, um, I think, especially in the 90s when I was in primary school, there was this belief that dyslexia was a mental condition. So therefore, you were no longer as smart as the other kids. So there, were, there was a certain taboo around being dyslexic. So I never got tested while I was in primary or secondary school. And I actually got tested in my third year of university only because um, a tutor of mine had said, if you've got a doubt, or even if you think you might be, just go and do it. And I remember I only found out three days before my final law exam. Mm -hmm. um, which is not the best time to find out that you're dyslexic because um, you realize how much help you could have gotten. But I, yeah, I found out I was dyslexic and dyspraxic, um, mm -hmm. which was good for me because I, I learned a bit about the way that um, I actually learn. But I'm also quite thankful I found out later on in life because even when I went for the assessment, I remember the woman telling me that you've actually found ways around um, your your disability and you found different ways of doing things already. Um, but one thing I'd say, if anyone thinks that they are, especially if you're going into um, further or higher education, even if you've got a niggling doubt, just go get it done because, number one, it's free while you're in education. Um, and it will also set you up for life because it means that you know what your strengths are at an earlier point in. Yeah, uh, I think it was only when I got into the world of working that I people started discussing it more openly. I think it, traditionally in some of our communities, especially back home, there's still the stigma around it. And, uh, you know, it results in us kind of making or realizing that we learn in a different way quite quite late on, which might be slightly disadvantaged to us as, as a community but yeah definitely agree with your advice that, that you're giving is if you if you think it go out and and uh, you know test get a test and it's free and you can do it online even um so you went did you go to public school or, or private school or I, islamic school I, I went to um public school um, so for, for anyone listening to from South London, I went to Franciscan, then I went to Early in Streatham, then I went to Hillbrook. And then mm -hmm. secondary school, I stayed fairly stable. I stayed in Ernest Bevan College um, mm -hmm. for all of secondary and sixth form. 
Oh, that, so you you really really are thoroughbred um, South London. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so tell me a little bit more about your secondary school. You went to Ernest Bevan. Um, so Ernest Bevan, for anyone who doesn't know, is quite famous for obviously producing the likes of our mayor. Um, anyone else famous? I know a couple of cricketers came out of there too. Can't a few. Uh, there's a few um, TV presenters and quite a few sports people actually went to Ernest Bevan as well. Mm-hmm. And so what was Ernest Bevan like? Um I'd say I didn't know what to expect from secondary school when I, I don't think anyone does when that, when they first go to secondary school. Um, but I remember it being a place where I was really pushed to, to do my best. Um, I actually really enjoyed it as a school. Um, I had very good, um, group of friends. Um, I had some fantastic teachers and teachers that, uh, I, I even now think back to some of the advice that they've given and some of that advice still sticks with me. Um, but somewhere where not just the educational element was considered important, but also doing more things or engaging with the local community. And I was very much that person that would just say yes to literally everything thrown my way. So I think that made um, made it slightly easier. Um, but I think not forgetting that South London or like even the suburbs across London, but across um, other cities as well, there, there is a rougher element to it, um, which doesn't exist anymore. I feel like gentrification has kicked in, especially locally. Um, but there, there was always that element um, of not just the school, but the local community, and you kind of grow up with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I remember that. Um, definitely when I was probably growing up in Tooting at the same time as you, and... Um, you, you did feel the slightly sort of um, gang-ish culture, especially amongst um, some of the Asian boys in, in the area. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely gentrified over the years. And it does teach you an element of being street smart, I think, that um, I found quite transferable, actually, into the corporate world, at least, <laughs> which is uh, slightly funny and ironic. Um, so you, men- you mentioned that you had an interest in, um, you know, doing community work and doing stuff outside of, of, of school. Did you have an inclination in terms of what, what, what subjects you were interested in, what you were likely to go on to do at university at that stage? Um, on that point, actually, I'd like to one day do a breakdown between the comparative connections between gangs and the finance sector. I'm sure that'll be interesting. Uh, um, well, let me let me nominate myself to be one of the proofreaders on that. <laughs> um, I think the community work element. Um, so obviously, as most schools do, they they have. Um, student councils and that's really where I got involved I think I enjoyed being someone I remember one teacher saying to me you're really argumentative either do politics or do law Um, and he was just quite straightforward with me Um, but I remember being involved with the school's council and the more administrative side of the school because I realized the importance of it. I think for me, it's realizing that a lot of students used to say, oh, well, that that teacher's doing that, or why is this subject doing this, or that's really unfair. But the the productive way of actually changing is actually engaging with the system that creates that, and that's the teachers, that's the that's the governors of the school. Um, And I think that's that's where, for me, I will enjoyed getting involved because it means that I could have real-term change in a place that was impacting me, but also people I was engaging with, my peers, uh, my friends. And I think that 
as you can see from what I do now, was very much transferable um, in the work that I continue to do. It starts from the grassroots and then it sort of, uh, you know, blossoms into into more um, national kind of types of efforts. I did it the opposite way, which was I started with an organization like Patchwork and then I kind of went back to some grassroots organizations and started helping them in the community, uh, which, which is typical of me. But um, I... I wish that I had also gained that interest at such an early on. I think my um, school environment was a bit more enclosed, going to a private school. So we had less of that outside the Muslim community. Uh, not mm. to say that there wasn't opportunities uh, within uh, our Muslim community to, to kind of take that um, type of role. Um, so, so moving on to university then. Um, you, so I don't know if it was that teacher's advice or something else, but you ended up actually doing law at the University of Westminster. Um, how did you find studying law? Uh, was it all um, you expected it to be? Uh, what was your university experience like? So I think the reason why I ended up doing law is through a process of elimination. Um, most of my friends, um, Ernest Bevin College, uh, especially the sixth form at that point, was quite Asian. So a lot of my peers went on to do science. Some went on to do maths. Um, so th those were kind of the standard routes of getting into university or the standard subjects. So do, do, I think I was one of a few that did law in my year. Um, and for me, it just made sense. Like my teacher said, you enjoy arguing, so go do something you're good at. Um, actually, for me, it was originally between law and doing um, something within the arts. I enjoyed drawing. I enjoyed um, painting. But I remember my mom and um, others in my family saying to me, actually, do a degree you can rely on. Um, and I remember my mom saying to me that your, your degree is your, kind of your insurance policy. If something doesn't work out in life, at least you've got a degree you can rely on. Um, and at the time, I was like, oh, do I have to? But now looking back at it, that was very sound advice, especially from the position that we were in um, financially, but also socially. It made sense. And now I completely get it. Um, but I think my university experience, I, I stayed in London, so that was... Um, something different because a lot of people that I knew had moved out of, out to enjoy the university experience but for me I had to stay in London mostly because my mum was there alone and she needed uh, me to take care of her as well mm -hmm. um, so I, I stayed in London but the thing about University of Westminster is slap bang in the centre of London so it exposes you to a lot of what London has to offer as well um, and I made some really good friends but one thing you realise when you go into into university and I think this might be a law thing or it might be um, in other courses as well but you meet people who wouldn't meet in other places of life like I met people at university that you never imagine walking around tooting like for some people I was the first Muslim that they've ever met or engaged with um, so I had many many questions asked about me being Muslim and what that's like and if the stuff that they hear on the news is actually true and accurate and these are highly educated people most of my peers went to grammar or private school um, so that that for me was quite interesting because if you come to Tooting, it's a very diverse community. Um, yeah, I was studying with people who hadn't engaged with someone like me or of similar background. Um, and I remember always being told, oh, you speak really well. And a, a, part, a part of me was, was like, yes, for your skin color or for your background is what you're saying, but you're not saying that. 
Um, but throughout, throughout university, I, I realized very quickly that it, w- it was a degree I enjoyed because I enjoy knowing stuff. So if, if you enjoy just knowing stuff, law is a great degree to have, but also gives you good skills of um, critical and, uh, analysis, which I feel like most employees always list as a thing that they're looking out for. Um, but also it puts you in a group that really pushes you to, to work your hardest. Um, it's definitely not a degree you can sit down and kind of see how you go. Um, it's, it's one that you do have to work hard for. There is a lot of reading involved, um, a lot of long nights and a lot of caffeine. A lot of essay writing. So are you like a pro at writing essays? I, I can come up with a theory. The writing element, um, is <laughs> linking to, to the, to the dyslexia point, not my strong point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was one of those people. I knew what I wanted to write. Sitting down and actually doing it was a very different question. Um, so, yeah, there, there were a few last-minute essay handouts. Yeah, I struggled with exactly the same thing. And it's quite funny because my parents gave exactly the same advice as your mom. <laughs> They're like, go and do a degree. It's your insurance policy. <laughs> um, I, I just want to explore how your role with your faith and your identity as being a Muslim maybe evolved over that period um uh, what years was that was that around you know 2012 2011 maybe or before so i was in university from 2012 for three years so 2015 is when i graduated do you feel it was a particularly difficult time to be a muslim at university a young muslim at university did it your experiences in having to sort of almost explain what being a Muslim is to some of your peers, strengthen your relationship with with Islam? I'm going to start slightly earlier. Um, For those um, listening, kind of the 9-11 was kind of the the big moment for our community because it changed how everyone looked at us. And I actually remember being in primary school at that point and walking to school and getting called Paki. Um, And it's not something that I'd heard before because I feel like pre-9-11, we were judged for being Asian. Um, and you'd get the comments of, oh, you smell like curry, or do you have curry every day? Um, and it was more about scent and appearance. But after that, it became about being Muslim. Um, and I remember that being very, very clear, because even even going to school, you'd get like the old terrorist joke. Um, and obviously, when you're at secondary school, you think nothing of it. You're just like, okay, you're just taking the piss out of me. That's fine. Um but I think in universities, when I realized actually there is a huge element of our country that has never engaged with someone like me, because as far as the jokes go in a metropolitan city like London, you you still expect everyone to have an exposure to your community or have an understanding that actually not all Muslims are what they're portrayed to be on TV. Um, and it's at that point that I realized actually I need to make concerted effort on behalf of my community to be the best I possibly can. Um because one thing that I've always been a strong believer in is w- we are judged by the worst of us, not the best of us. So if if one person has a bad experience of someone from our community, that's their judgment on our whole community. And it's unfair on our community, but that's how we're always judged. So if they can have a positive experience with me, regardless of it's just me asking how their day was or just, just a basic um, thing that I can do, 
then then why not? And for a lot of them, it was just teaching them that actually my faith is this and not this. Um, and I think at university, it was quite it was quite interesting because I was at university during the period where there were a lot of young people from universities going abroad to fight. Um, so there were prevent was mentioned nearly every day um, in some sort of setting, especially because I was quite closely engaged with the student union, student, uh, student societies. So there was that feeling that actually there is someone watching over you because of your faith or the groups that you're engaging with. Um, and looking back at it, I feel like that was slightly unfair, but you, you realize where that hostile environment came from because it was the years on um, from what had happened and public perception of our community. Um, but I'd say it was a positive experience. I would never call it a bad experience, but it's the realization that you were treated differently or looked at differently just because of your associated faith. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, how much of that do you think we have control over? Because a lot of it's kind of, you know, at the time, it, it's it's sort of is accelerated or a light pushed on it because of the media and a certain message is sent out and people are sort of um, drawn in by that message. And do you think the responsibility falls on us as a community to try and reach out to that population? You know, as Muslims, should we be looking at trying to reach out to people who are are maybe being radicalized and try to do something about it. Um, Is it good good enough just us trying to represent the best of Islam without actively trying to do something about the problem we have? I I think there's multiple layers. And as you know, I spend my my day life of engaging with communities and there's, there's probably books and books that can be written on this. But I think if I'm going to break it down, I think, yes, there is, we have to accept that it's an unfair system. We we are going to be judged on the small um, things that we do. So I think working our way up from that and recognizing that it's an unfair system that we're working in is the best way to change it is by engaging with it. Um, and I think that's always my advice, whether I hear a young person say, oh, that's not, that's not fair, man, or um, why is this like that? Well, go in and change it. Go in and fix the system because it's not going to change because of you complaining. It's not going to change because you're calling out as being unfair. We've seen that, especially over the last few weeks with um, race matters across the world. It's not changing because people are saying it's changed. Something has had to happen to bring that in. Um, and there's had to be a mental shift. And I think the, the issue with Islamophobia, say, in the country is very similar, where it's a realization of of movement and change. And you're, you're, you're seeing that already when we have public figures like Sadiq Khan, who, who's now mayor of London. And that's changed certain people's perception. But also anything bad that he does is also related to his faith. So it's it's that balance of how do we how do we show that if we do good things as a community, it's not just because they're a good person, but that it's also attributed to our faith. And um, as it's done with bad things that happen in our community as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes it is just the basic stuff of getting involved with local things. It doesn't have to be national. I'm not telling everyone to go and become a, a member of parliament. If you do, go for it. Um, but it might be, the, as you said, the more basic things, you might have a certain a role in your community now or you might not have any engagement right now 
but getting your mosque to do more stuff locally, getting your local um, community centers to be doing stuff. I think that's that's a step forward, uh, or at least a step in the right direction. And look, our community is the same as everyone else's. We have our faults as well uh, as, well as our um, great achievements, but it's about seeing what we can do to move forward as as, as a whole. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think when I went through a phase of thinking, you know, what can I do to make a difference? It just helped to actually look in my local community, what organizations appealed to me, what work they were doing, and where I could potentially fit in. And by getting more actively involved, you sort of get yourself out of this loop of just constantly thinking the worst and actually feeling a bit better about actually doing something to impact at least the people's lives um, who live around you. And that's that's the best starting point, anyway. Uh, you man, you manage, you mentioned sort of engagement or doing something, getting involved as a mechanism of potential change. And I know that's quite tied into what you do at the moment. Um, so, can you tell me a little bit more about your role as CEO as of, of Patrick Foundation? Um, how did you? get into that role, I guess, or uh, because it's a bit of a transition from law um, to what Patchwork does. Um, and just talking through maybe your experiences that took you from, you know, being a university graduate of, of law and, and then moving into the charity sector, um, uh, working with Patchwork. So I think Patchwork started off um, my first year of university, actually. And it was just a group of us who who wanted to do something to bring politics closer to minority communities. And Patchwork was a voluntary project all the way till 2016. Um, so it just ran as an idea, as a concept. And I think the thing that brought me into it and the thing that really drove me is it was the real ability to bring a decision maker up and close with those who are being impacted by policies and changes that they are actively in charge of. So very, very rarely do you see the ability for someone who's making a decision about your life and being able to question them, ask them, or tell them about something. And I think that, for me, that's the ideal version of democracy. If someone's impacting something in your life, you should at least have the right of engaging or understanding or contributing to something before it impacts you. Um, but the, the further element of that is the lack of representation in, in in politics and democracy as a greater whole. So that's where Patchwork's come out of now, where Patchwork, um, for those who don't know, is a charity that supports young people to engage with politics and democracy with the ultimate aim of engaging and having an, an active role in public life. And the reason why, why we seek to do that, and that includes not just the Muslim community, but um, other faith communities, um, other um, ethnic communities, minority communities, working class communities, um, basically anyone who doesn't have the mainstream voice in politics, which is very few people in this country. And the only way that you can change something is by engaging proactively with it. Because even if you're not the person stood up there standing, if you can be the person contributing to that discussion at least, it means the person making the final decision can make a more educated decision. And I think that the way that ties into law for me is law is very similar in the sense if you can make an educated point or argument about something, 
um, that's probably the view that people are going to go with. And it's the same in politics. In politics, if you can make a logical argument for something, people will probably back you. Um, and again, they're, they're both two tenets of how this country is run. You've got the judicial system and the legal system of keeping things to rights and the law. But then on the, the other side, you've got the lawmakers, the politicians. So for me, I see them two, two of the same in that sense. And historically, our parliament has been filled with people who've studied law because to 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 use the law impactfully it's is to understand it at least in the first instance and we've seen that especially during brexit um having lawyers around is somewhat useful mm-hmm. uh, i think like what i've been quite impressed about is at such a young age you're having to kind of work and be in spaces with quite you know so, some may say quite intimidating sort of individuals or high-profile people how have you got comfortable with that i mean you know you've you've done work with the um princess trust you've been to buckingham palace you're often in in the houses of parliament you're meeting mps um how did you get comfortable with all of that i think the truth is i was never comfortable at the start um and to a degree i i'm still not comfortable with those environments or those people because I think it's the realization that actually you might have visited 10 Downing Street 10 times but you're still looked as if you are an outsider because you ultimately are um, and quite often in these environments I'm the only Muslim or the only Asian or the only young person in the room um, and although that was quite daunting at the start I think for me now it's I'm playing a role whether that's as a Muslim, whether that's as a young person, as a CEO of Patchwork, I'm playing a role and have to do my best to represent that group that I'm representing, or all those groups quite often. To do that impactfully, um, I, I kind of have to get over that because I have to. It's, it's not more I want to get over it, it's more I need to get over it to, to do what I need to, to be doing, whether it's asking for a minister for something or introducing someone. And I think the, the other element of me is, is a lot of the people that I engage with are public servants at the end of it. They're, they're trying to do something for the public. So why should I be scared of something whose sole role it is to represent me as a person from the public or the communities that I engage with? Because ultimately it's their responsibility to, to be listening. Mm. Um, and I, I, I recognize that sometimes is that all factor. And I think there was an element of that when I was younger, whereas right now it's more of a focus on am I getting the aims or am I able to achieve what I want to be doing for the communities I'm trying to support? Because for me, that's the real win. If I, mm-hmm. if I can make that happen, that for me, that that's now replaced the, um, the, the weird feeling that maybe when you, when you meet someone that you're mm-hmm. really inspired by. So going back to your organization's aims, I guess your own personal aims, to try and make a more representative democracy and to try and give um, you know people from maybe a disadvantaged or minority background an opportunity to get into politics is not an easy thing to do. I guess my question to you is like, do you think politicians and the current state of um, uh, you know politics in this country is enabling the work that you do? or more of a blocker in terms of the work you're doing. And I'm specifically talking maybe about the current, you know, um, 
administration, I guess. And, you know, they've been quite ruthless in selecting who is in number 10 at the moment, who's part of the special advisory team. And um, I guess where do you draw the line between having a representative um representative types of politics, but also ensuring you have the most competent people filling those roles. Because competency is almost used as a justification, I think, sometimes for not maybe giving one person an opportunity over another. I think in in sense of politics being an enabler or a blocker, I think politics has to become or is an enabler. It's it's how we function and how we do things. If we agree that democracy is the way that we want to be doing things, it's through the political parties that we select our our leaders and our prime ministers and ministers and our, even our local MPs. Um, and I think, as is, as you've seen through Patchwork, all the parties have been very happy and we've been very happy to engage with them. And that's the way that we need to be doing things. And it's not to say that Politics is always easy to engage with, but even locally for people to engage with their local party, it's not too hard where they can go to the local MP's office or they, if they don't agree with that party, they can go to the person running against them and go engage with them. Um, but I think it's, it's not, it's something that we as Patchwork have had to work on over the years because obviously parties come and go, people come and go. Um, and it's reestablishing those connections, those engagements is quite important for us and for us to be engaging with everyone um, and talking about the importance of this stuff. But I've always stuck to the element that it's always more important to be in the room then out of the room. It's it's kind of the situation you don't want to just be a listener. You want to be an engager with the, with the issue. Um, and quite often that means you may have to engage in um, environments that you don't want to be engaging with. So sometimes I've been invited where um, I might not be comfortable, but I realize it's important for the communities that I represent for me to be there because otherwise that opinion will never be voiced. So yeah, for for me, it's always who's who's around the table because it's quite important that the people around the table are representative of the issue that they're working on. And all too often, you see tables that are just made up of people that don't represent the communities that are probably going to going to impact the worst. So we've we've seen that with um, stuff like Grenfell, where um, the communities impacted the worst weren't the ones making the decision. So I think, and I think we're slowly learning from that, um, where we're seeing more engagement with those communities, um, because there's a realization that people sat in the center of London won't know how to run all of the country being sat in the middle of London. And you're seeing that happen through politics where there's more lo more localized politics and even the parties now concentrating on having localized focus on uh, on their policies and what they want to do in certain parts of the country as well. Do you think, I, I guess, with the amount of change that's been taking place in our politics over the past few years, has it been has it really impacted in the amount of progress you've been able to do as an organization? Um, or do you think you've just have to roll with it and adapt and be flexible in the way that you approach the way you do things? I think, I think I've heard a lot of people say that change in politics, but politics is forever changing. 
Um, our prime minister technically has to change every four years. If they get reselected, then great for them. But um, politics is forever changing. And every time we see a swing to the right, we see an equal swing to the left. And every time we see a swing to the left, we see a swing to the right. So I feel like it's understanding that key element of politics. It's always in the swing, um, regardless of what co what country you're in. Now we're seeing countries like Turkey who've kind of swung a certain way and might swing a another way in another 10 or 20 years. And I feel like that's just a process of politics. And the only way that you can be flexible enough as an, as an organization is to run with that. I think for us as a, as a charity, we will never say that that person should be prime minister or shouldn't be prime minister. That's not our place. That's the country's place. For us, it's we should be engaging with whoever's in that seat, whoever's in that position, because it's for us to go and then educate and support the communities and the people in office of how to best engage with each other. How can young people learn from the individual who's now reached that top position? Um, we're not in the business of being commentators of what's happening in public office because the BBC does that, ITV does that. You've got so many platforms. You've got Twitter now, which is literally filled with millions of people who can give their personal view on why they don't like a certain person. Um, I think what makes Patrick unique is what we try to communicate with our young people is put that to one side for a second. Now, boil it down to what are your issues and who are the people that can change it. Now, if you once you found out who can change that, now go and engage with that system. It might not be a politician. It might be a civil service department. It might be an agency. Whatever it is, go and engage with that and fix the problem. And that's how you create that. It might seem like a minute change, but that's how you create long-term and sustainable change. And I think for us as a charity, that's that's what we try to focus on. How do we make that kind of magic point happen? Of It's mm -hmm. not about the politics, it's about the people. And you hear that from politicians all too often. But yeah. I think for us, that's the key element. We're not in, we might be engaging with political parties and parliament and MPs, but for us, it, it boils it down to the individuals. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I, I think you hit it on uh, the nail on the head over there. Um, at, we're coming towards the end of our podcast, Imran. Um, time has just uh, flown by. But I do have a final question. So a lot of our listeners are quite young, maybe thinking about what um, careers they should pursue, what they should study at university, perhaps. Um, so I think, I guess you can give two pieces of advice here. So one is, um, you know, what what... What do you need to consider or to take into account when working or looking to work in the charity sector? And number two, for for young people looking to work in the public sector, either, like you say, as a civil servant or perhaps even running and becoming a member of parliament someday, what are the things they should consider? I, th I think um, slightly for both um, you need to look at what your passions are. Um, so many people ask me, would I never run for public office? And for me, it's not something that drives you. It's not a motivator for me. So knowing what motivates you is a key element of knowing what you want to do. And a lot of the people that work in the charity sector don't do it because of the pay, but do it because they love it. Um, so look for something that really drives you and i'd say even in the muslim if, if your focus is on muslim charities muslim charities need a lot of help and need a lot of good talent um and one of the biggest barriers if you want to work in the charity sector there aren't great 
methods of young people to jump in there aren't graduate schemes so there might be a point where you're actually there aren't any opportunities but there are opportunities you just have to go out there and look for them and it might be starting off as a volunteer or engaging with the local organization and then working your way up um and the other thing is the pay the pay in the charity sector is not great um but that's something i think a lot of us realize it's it's the work that we do this for and there are great perks of the charity sector the things that you do the people that you support and the impact that you go on and have is is priceless um in regards to the public sector or political obviously the civil service has their their fast stream they have their summer uh, vacation scheme so definitely go and check those out and there's a heavy drive on diversifying their workforce so look at what's available to you and use the opportunities that they're trying to put out for a lot of the minority communities out there. In regards to political office, I'd say first engage on a local level. You, you can't jump from being a voter to an MP overnight. Um, the people who are now MPs in Parliament have been working on it or volunteering for their political party anywhere from two years all the way to 20 years. So have that in mind before you jump for political office. And I'm a keen believer in having some sort of back, uh, some sort of track record before you jump for political office, because it number one means that you have trained in an area. So even if political office hasn't worked for you, you've still got something that you can rely on financially. But also means you've got a lived experience. Um, all too often, we've seen it: people who have been MPs for their whole lives or politicians for their whole lives, and fail to tell you the price of milk. Um, which is the one always used by ITV. Um, but it, it kind of highlights the issue of sometimes the, poli uh, the political elite that we select. So if you're looking for political office, you, you have to give up some spare time, but also have the financial stability to do that as well. Politics does not pay until you get to the top end of it. Um, and that's the truth. So you need to make sure you're financially secure and you've achieved some of your own aims, um, whether personally or financially, before you go on to take on something like that. Um, and then once you're in that place and you've given up the time for the party you love and care about, then hopefully you're in a position to step up as councillor or MP or at least become a candidate for a certain area. Um, but all too often with all of this stuff, it's just about going and doing it. No one's going to come up to you and tell you that you can become an MP now. It's by taking the personal initiative and saying, actually, this is something I really care about, so I'm going to go and do this. And uh, like I said, it might be something that you do for 20 years before you finally decide, actually, I want to go and do this. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a long-term game plan, if you are. But politics is not the only game plan that you should have. No, I like that because I think you've given excellent but realistic advice around the expectations of pursuing either of those roles. Uh, I would say that volunteering in the charity sector has so much, um, uh, you know, benefits beyond pay in terms of opportunities and experiences and the, you know, the contacts you are able to build along the way that the earlier you get into it, the better. For me, I, I put it off for a long while and, um, you know, especially when it comes to network and opportunities. Um, yeah, um, people often overlook the charity sector, but um, I think it's well up there. And, and I think for for us as Muslims as well, it's giving up our time is, is a form of sadhga. Of so we're realizing that actually we're not just creating the dunya, we're also creating the akhira. And for me, that's one of the key drivers. It's, I know I'm I'm 
not only am I able to sustain what I want to do in in my life, but hopefully I'm creating something that I can do in the, in the hereafter. Mm-hmm. So you're not only making money for this life, you're making money for the hereafter as well. Yeah. Um, so for me, it, it fits both bills. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Imran. That, that was a fantastic chat. I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you We for do have me. this little sort of uh, fun round at the end, which, which you're not escaping from. <laughs> I was trying. I was trying. <laughs> so I'm just going to, um, we, we have a few minutes left, but I'm just going to say a few words. Um, and uh, it's a word association game. So the first thing that comes to your mind, it can be, you know, a thought. It doesn't have to be one word. Um, yeah, just feel free to respond and, and don't take too much time thinking about it because that defeats the purpose of the game. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start off with an easy word for you. London. Tooting. Tooting, wow. <laughs> If people if if people have been to Tooting maybe five or six years ago, um, yeah, I think I think the rest of London is now representative of Tooting. As as everyone knows, anyone who knows me knows that I have a key belief that the whole world revolves around Tooting. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> when I first, and I'm sure the mayor country, would agree. When I first came to this country and I was you know I was taken to Tooting at the first time, I said, hold on, this isn't a place that I saw in Notting Hill the movie. <laughs> Oh, um, okay, another word for you. Um, law. Justice. Politics. Unjust. Um, marriage. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm still hopeful, and it's like two years down the line. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let your wife know. <laughs> Um, and interest haram <laughs> so I actually thought that was meant more like you know what is your interest but oh yeah, I sorry <laughs> you're I a finance person and you said interest I was just trying to keep it halal you know for all the young people listening yeah good response good good um, covering all bases over there <laughs> All right, well, that's it. Um, You've come to the end of our podcast. Um, So thanks again to my um, guest, Imran. If you have liked listening to this podcast, um, do um, comment, um, subscribe, and share with your friends and family. Uh, But until next time, assalamu alaikum from me and... Assalamu alaikum from me and thank you for having me.